Hey everybody and welcome back to the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, this week we have five developers on our panel. We're going to start out with our guest. He's visiting us from railscast.com, Ryan Bates. Well, everybody. Now, Ryan, awesome we, to be here. we usually just do some kind of quick introduction, so if there's anything else you want to let us know. Uh, that's it. All right. Um, we also have James Edward Gray. That's Edward, not Earl. I am not a T. <laughs> David Brady. Team Edward, just like James Edward Gray. <laughs> and Josh Susser. Yeah, thoroughly Team Jake. <laughs> and I'm Charles Max Wood. Um, if I fall asleep, it's because my wife just had our fourth child. And uh, yeah, so I didn't sleep last night. Congratulations, uh, Chuck. Congratulations. Congrats. Thanks, guys. All right. So this week, we're going to be talking about some stuff around testing. Um, we have a couple of topics that we're going to cover. I think the first thing that we were going to talk about is what, what not to test. And just to humor Josh, um, I think we need to ask, what's the definition of testing? <laughs> I'm so predictable. <laughs> I, I love it when Dave gives the definitions. I, I, well, yes. you, need to, you need to give me more time to prepare for that. All right, so <laughs> definition of testing. Oh, gosh, it's that crap you do at the testing center. Uh, you get the number two pencil and you fill in the circles. Oh, there you uh, go. T- testing is when you assert uh, that the program does what it is supposed to do, and that means that you have to say what the, te- the program is supposed to do. All right. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't involve hitting reload in the web browser. It can. <laughs> That's one kind of testing. It can. In, in in a horrible horrible world, yes. That's. As a QA I've... person, I actually lived in that horrible horrible world. They wouldn't let us script any of our tests. You know, as much as we make fun of that, I actually have known some people that never hit reload in a browser, and they believe that you can just tell everything from a test suite, and that doesn't work either. I I have been bitten by that in the last two weeks. I I had everything green across the board. All my Cucumber features were passing. I had 100% code coverage, and I, I obviously... And uh, I launched the app at 10 o'clock at night and I went to bed and I got up the next morning. And yeah, the critical path didn't actually work because there was something that I never bothered to write or test. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's not one of the things you shouldn't have tested. Right. <laughs> right. That was a bad call on my part. T- test, the, test the critical path. Is that the moral of the story? That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> okay, we're done for this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if it's important, then... Test, cover it, cover, test, test, test. How about, how about if we come at this one from a slightly different angle? I put, it's probably worth pointing out. Uh, Ryan reminded us after we invited him to be on the show that we've actually discussed this topic before. Uh, mm-hmm. Testing is probably going to be one of the permitted topics we kind of come back to again and again just because, mm-hmm. oh, it's huge and we get new insights and we hear new things and stuff like that. So uh, one of the reasons I was kind of interested in talking about this one again is I just got back from Lone Star, and at Lone Star, uh, Obi Fernandez, in his um, keynote, made a comment about his belief is that startups uh, in the early stages, like, for example, if you're just trying to put together a prototype or something uh, to get VC funding, maybe, then he actually argued that he thinks it's wrong to test. Because in that situation, you're going to be probably throwing away a lot of ideas, trying some things, chunking them, 
and that that extra time you spent making it solid is just wasted time if you're, you know, just playing around with an idea. And then, of course, after you've secured funding and you know what path you're going forward on or something like that, uh, then it's acceptable. But uh, or, you know, I, not, not even acceptable, desirable, I guess. Uh, we only have 53 minutes left in this episode, so I, I'm just going to say I don't know where to begin saying what's wrong with that, and I'll <laughs> let other people talk. Awesome. <laughs> well, let's come at it from the is it okay not to test angle. Uh, when, how, how about we go around the horn on that one? Well, I can start on that. I think the, I think I do that to a smaller scale in a way what you were talking about what Obi said uh, where sometimes I'm not sure exactly how to design something and I will just you know take the, take the current uh, get check out just kind of t- try something out uh, experiment, experiment with a bit and then just do get reset and then start over from you know test first development once I get an idea of okay how do I want this to work sometimes I do that uh, but that's sort of a smaller scale than what Obi's talking about I don't know if I would use you know an entire project and just uh, not do any testing. So I want to chime in here because it sounds like what you're saying is similar to what Obi's saying in the sense that he's saying essentially um, as a startup, you don't know what the throwaway code, it's all a big experiment. So, you know, you, you effectively are doing that. And then when you're ready to go, you do a, a quick re- reset or reboot and then start testing in earnest because you know where you're going and what you're building. I guess it's a way to define the spec, maybe? Yeah. Better? Yeah, I, I believe that's where he was going with it. I, I did a bad job of relaying the story, but uh, basically he had a scenario where he and his partner came together to work on a project, both being from big rails consultancies. They were very used to doing it the professional way, and they went forward building a lot of well-tested, you know, well-developed code, Get got to point, you know, to a point where they realize that the the this subset of their problem is the interesting part, you know, which made them end up throwing away a lot of that effort, you know. Right. Um, I do know that some people, and I'm not one of them. Um, some people claim that they can actually write code faster doing TDD. The, so, so that that's interesting because there's um there was some some uh, numbers that were being tossed around in the last day or two about a study, and I'm trying to find the citation, but I can't find it at the moment. Um, but the, they're saying that the um, quality or the, the defect rate of, um, of code done by TDD was something like up to 90% higher quality code or 90% fewer bugs, but it took something like 15 to 30% longer when you were doing mm-hmm. TDD. So that's that's just one set of numbers. So. I think the the time it takes is a little bit hard to measure because you also have to take, take into account the time that it will save you later on in the future, assuming the specs you know don't change sure. drastically. Sure, that that's a great point. But I think that's what Obi was getting at is that if you're if you're kicking off a startup company and your number one goal is to get to the point where you can get funding. To create your to create the sh- the product that's going to ship, then it's more important to get that done quickly rather than have a high quality, long term maintainable code base. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I uh, think, a, I think, okay, so go ahead. go ahead, David. Sorry, you I, had some strong opinions on so this. So I had some strong, strong. So uh, there's a balance, right? I mean, 
I don't want to test my balsamic mock-ups. I don't want to. I don't want to waste a whole ton of time testing a prototype uh, to make sure that it's airtight. Um, and, and I can see that. I I get kind of itchy. My, my my head kind of itches when people say that that um, testing is you know it's twice as many lines of code. Therefore, it is twice as hard. Therefore, um, if you go without testing, that's half as easy um, or twice as easy. And it, I don't know. I think I, th- I think those people are are just coming at it wrong. They haven't. Their whole approach to testing is that they haven't honed their testing to the point where it's their go-to tool to develop uh, code the first time around. Um, having said that, um, whipping up a quick prototype and showing it to the customer—that's a perfectly valid test. It, by if if I can go back to my own definition, um, that asserts that the code does what it should do. It, it should look like this. What do you think? Will you give us money? Yes, you will. Great, we win. So it passed the test. Um, however, if you stay in that mode, if you statically compile your brain into that mode, you are now in don't test ever mode and you are writing legacy code. And you have to recognize that if you're not ever going to test, you're, you're an idiot. And if you start off with this goal of, hey, let's not test because we'll move faster, that is a very seductive uh, statement and it's going to tempt a lot of people over the line into writing legacy code. I do like that definition, that kind of broader definition of a test that um, I don't know about you guys, but if I want to destroy something I've written in about 10 seconds, I just go get my wife um, and sit her down at the keyboard. And I'm not saying that my wife is evil or has gremlins or anything like that. What I am saying is that um, she doesn't have the assumptions I have. So when she sits down at the keyboard, the first thing she tries is the thing I think, well, I didn't think of that, you know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it all falls apart very quickly. So, so does, our, does our default definition of testing mean automated testing? Not necessarily. That's a good question. Uh, you mean, I, I see what you're saying. I, that, I'm glad you're going there because I was, I was actually going to ask, uh, if using auto test or guard are good practices. Yeah, before before we get to that, James, I had a question to kind of uh, extend what we were talking about earlier, and that is: Do you think is uh, do you think testing automated testing in this case uh, makes changes more difficult later on if you aren't sure about the user spec? Sort of going back to what Obi was talking about: uh, If you aren't sure exactly what features you want in this application, do you think having you know, tests written out completely makes it more difficult to change those features in the future if you, you know, you want it to behave a little differently. That's I, a great... I'll, I'll, jump, I'll jump in here. Um, I think there is a cost, um, mm-hmm. mainly because you then have to not only uh, invalidate code, but you also have to invalidate tests, and you may have to rewrite other tests that, you know, relied on that um, but still provide you know coverage on other functionality that you wanted to keep, and so I mean there's there's definitely added costs in that sense, um, but uh, you know I don't I don't know if that necessarily makes it good or bad. I think what we're really discussing here what are the trade offs? I yeah I I'll weigh in as well and say that every every time I have heard somebody made th- make this argument, there has been an excruciating amount of pain in poorly factored tests. Um, if to, to the point that if somebody says, um, "Well, changing the code means I've got to change my tests, so let's not write tests," 
I, I just immediately assume that they're writing poorly factored tests. And I would love to be proven wrong on that. I'd love to have somebody come back to me and say, well, I've got a really good non-duplicated test suite, but we spent all this time cleaning up the test suite, and we spent all this time, you know, da-da-da-da. And, and should you do that while you're doing exploratory tests? Okay, okay yeah, all right, you shouldn't, you know, if, if you've got to move fast, you shouldn't. But at some point, you've got to realize that you're, you're charging, you're, you're mortgaging your future at an exorbitant interest rate. I um I was thinking about the the whole is it hard to change uh, with you have a good test suite and in my experience I haven't really run into that a lot I've heard people use that argument quite a bit um, but I find usually if I'm changing something then at worst I have to yank out a few tests that I had before my delete key is pretty fast it it goes <laughs> down real quick and comes back up real quick so I think actually one thing that kind of bothers a lot of people um. I, I have met multiple people who are very allergic to the delete key. Like once they've <laughs> once they've put it in there, they're invested in it and they care about it, and uh, and they, it makes them feel bad to say, "Oh, I was wrong, and I need to just yank these uh, um, ten tests." And and me, I don't ever really uh, that doesn't bother me. If I've learned something and gained new ground, then I, I don't have a problem pushing delete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's still I'm, progress, I'm with right? you. I'm with you. So, so everybody knows the red-green refactor cycle mm-hmm. the, you know, for, for TDD. The, there's another step, which is you, know, you go red, green, refactor, and then you refactor your tests. Right. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I like that, too. I like that. I think I, mean, I don't do that fourth step often enough. My test code does tend to be a little bit messier than my main code. I, th- I think that's that's a pretty common occurrence if you look at the at the uh, the you know, the typical project. That, that's think, okay. Your tests don't actually do anything important, so they're not really code. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. No, well, I had it. Go ahead. So, so, so I think it's interesting. You know, one of the to get back to the topic of, of what not to test and when you shouldn't test. There's um, I. Yeah, you know, there's a couple a couple common things. Like one is it's too hard to write the test, and another one is that the test would take too long. And uh, I saw a presentation last night about um, a big distributed parallel testing system that they put together at Square. And you know they had they had test runs that were taking many hours in CI, and they came up with with a way to distribute and take advantage of parallelism to deal with that. But you know if you're Trying to run tests locally and and it takes you twenty minutes to run your test suite. It's really hard to get into the the red green cycle, and uh, you know to respond to James. I think things like auto test uh, or guard are great to have stuff running in the background, but I don't like them when you make a small change and you know if I make a change, I know exactly what tests I want to run when I'm test driving. And that might take me only a few seconds to run those tests, but that's if I have to wait for auto test or, or guard to catch up with by running all of the dependencies, then that might be an issue. And I, and I know that those things have gotten smarter about uh, trying to focus on the tests that actually matter, but yeah, I, I still wanna, think they can't do as well. I I, I want to jump in here and and ask another question then because. Um, sometimes you change something and inadvertently will break a test that isn't on your list of things that you need to run. And I think that's where auto test and guard and some of these come in handy because they'll actually run your entire test suite. 
And, you know, so if you fix something up in your model and uh, you break one of your tests in your controller, then, you know, if it wasn't something that you knew you needed to run the test on, it'll catch that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's let, great. Let me just make a comment about how Guard actually works since there's been a couple of things that I, I've been using it quite a bit lately. And uh, um, the way Guard works is when you fire it up, it runs the entire test suite. And assuming that pass, you're good. And then going forward, it runs based on these patterns you write. So you basically tell it, if I change this model file, then go run this file in test unit, blah, blah, blah. And so you can kind of link those models to those, you know, the tests that cover them. Um, and it runs those files. As soon as something fails, then it goes into a failure state where it just keeps rerunning the fail stuff as you make changes. And then once you've succeeded in passing that thing that was failing, it goes back to running the entire test suite. It resets to run the entire test suite. Um, so that basically to verify, okay, you fixed that problem. Let's make sure you didn't screw up anything else uh, is kind of what I think it is. Um, but I, I, and, and so for the most part, it is a very intelligent pattern, I think. Uh, and it, it does do a pretty good job of, of uh, you know, zeroing in on the thing. I, I do have to agree with Josh, though. When I'm just doing it myself and driving, I am faster. Um, sometimes, you know, while I'm waiting on a brine, I'll, I'll go back and work on something else I know needs to happen. And so I'll get that file saved before guard's done checking whatever, uh, whatever it's going to check and stuff like that. Uh, so when I am just moving around myself, I, I can get ahead of it. Um, and that, that bothers me a little bit. However, I have found a good, like, if I'm going to try to dig in for, you know, if I'm going to be here a while and uh, working on something, then I, I like to go ahead and just set up Garden and uh, let it walk me through the process. And I love Guard's ability to do things like bring up Redos for me and stuff like that. So I found it helpful to use, but I do agree with Josh that I can move faster than it. So I have, I'm, yeah, okay. sorry. I, I love Guard. I, I agree with a, uh, James, there. He it's definitely an awesome tool. Uh, but I do I do agree with Josh too. I find that if a test takes you know over thirty seconds to run, I generally fall back to uh, running the test manually because I don't want to be stuck in that case where I'm waiting a minute after I make a quick change and then that breaks my red green refactor cycle where I'm stuck waiting on all the tests to run. I like to you know isolate. Okay, just this test file. Then uh, I, I can go much faster that way. So, so you're not a fan of red bathroom break green refactor? <laughs> exactly. I have what I call the Twitter limit, which is seven seconds. Um, from the time I hit control or Command S or Control S and save the file, if I don't have a green or a red within seven seconds, I'm looking at Twitter. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting shiny thinged, and my ADD kicks in. And so, when people talk to me about thirty second test suites, I, I really start to cringe. And when people people talking about thirty minute test suites, I'm like, okay, we got a problem here. Uh, so yeah, it's I don't know maybe I'm, maybe I'm a weirdo, but certainly your focus test should be it should be in and out in just a, you know single digits of seconds, which is why yeah, Rails three is really painful right now. For the most part, guard I find you know solves that problem pretty well for me. Just in uh, just a couple exceptions in my case where I'm have uh, fairly large test suites and a couple apps, I have to fall back to something else. But for the majority of the projects I run, a guard works really well. 
Mm-hmm. I'm okay if your integration suite takes two hours. I mean, that's 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 something that CI machine can do. <laughs> it can come it can come find you when things go red. Um, I do, James. I find myself uh, getting half a step ahead of guard a lot, um, where I'm. I save the file and I start writing the next thing, and then guard comes back and gives me the result of the previous one. And as long as it's green, 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 I'm okay with it. It's it's when it gets red and I'm a step ahead that I have to be willing to back up and okay, got to do baby steps, got to got to get things wrinkled, wrinkled through. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I run into some issues where like I find a bug and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna need to change like three different things in different places for that, and yeah. I find myself actually getting to where I've changed all three files and then I'm debating with myself about where I hit save first. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I realize when it gets me into those scenarios, it's not a good thing because I, you know, it's actually counterproductive. But I, I have really liked using Guard and and. Uh, Working with it, but uh, I, I do think it's good to notice, you know, that it's a trade-off, and there are there are times when it's okay to, you know, go without it. How much time do you spend configuring Guard, like when you create a new model or something? None. You uh, you when you set up Guard, you uh, put in these regexes basically that oh, okay. say it when this file changes, you you'll find the matching test file here. So the only time you really end up changing it is when you do something like introduce a new dependency like Redis or Rescue or something like that, and then you want Guard to automatically start that up for you and shut it back down. Um, it'll watch your bundle file and redo your bundle when you make changes there, your gem file, I mean, um, and stuff. So uh, that's that's a pretty neat aspect of it is that it's kind of an all-in-one. In fact, I, I find that I often go to the terminal to do it myself and then realize the guard's already done it, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot, but it's kind of neat. That makes sense. All right. Is there anything else we want to say about when, what, what not to test, what not to wear? Well, do we want to talk about some of the myths of what not to test? Yes, let's oh, do. Please. There, are, there myths. are myths. Hercules, yeah. the rescue. <laughs> okay, I prefer Xena. Xena. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, I bet James has a good myth that he can bust. <laughs> Me? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Why do I always get in trouble here? Uh, it's it's only because Josh. you keep starting it. Pay <laughs> yeah. back for yeah. last week. Good point, yeah. Uh, he started it. Um, let's see. Uh, a myth on what not to test. Um, oh, geez, that's a good question. Um, well, I'll, 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 I'll lobby a softball. How about it's too hard to test this? It's too hard to test this. Yeah, that one, that one usually turns out to be bunk. Although there are two cases I'm sympathetic to. Um, but, but I guess I better be careful here. Um, I, I do agree that it's too hard to test is usually bunk. If it, if it is too hard to test, that's usually a design flaw in my experience. Um, that you haven't written the code, you haven't busted it out enough and separated things. Avdi has some great ideas on stuff like that. I was running into a time problem uh, not too long ago where I had some tests that would only fail in the morning, but they wouldn't fail in the afternoon. Uh, and I, Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I used, Ryan, Time Cop, to put in there. And if you guys don't know that gem, it's a great one to look up. It lets you control uh, the time uh, so that you can say, for right now, the time is such and such. 
so that you can make it be morning in the afternoon and thus your tests will start failing and figure out what's going on there. Now um, I'm confused. <laughs> right, yeah, now it's confusing. But the cool thing, actually, Abdi gave me an even better idea that I like better. And he said, when I'm doing time calculations, I make sure I'm always passing my clock into the method. So basically, a method should not be generating its own clock. Like, it shouldn't say time dot now, because then it's using its own idea of a clock. But if people I forget pass... That, people forget so, that the system clock is a global variable. Right, it's a global variable, that's right. And so uh, if I'm passing my own clock in, then in the case of my test, it's trivial because I just set it to whatever I wanted to be and pass it in, you know. And Ruby, that's really trivial because all time is is just some big struct object, you know, with some methods you call on it. You can create a little uh, struct yourself, you know, with mon, year, day, whatever methods you're going to use and set them to whatever you want and you're good to go, you know. So uh, I thought that was a great tip from Audi. So I, I do agree that... Um, there are uh, that usually it's too hard to test is is kind of an excuse. Uh, I, one, another thing, external web services, I think being the perfect example of when you need to introduce a little mocking, and maybe we can talk more about that later. But uh, there's ways to test them. There are two cases I'm sympathetic with, though. Um, when you're doing uh, when you have like forked processes and you're checking their inter-process communication or something like that, I've tried to write tests for that in the past and found it very difficult. And I've, I've really tried it in a lot of different ways. So I tend to just try to make sure that one guy's doing everything I expect him to do and the other guy's doing everything I expect him to do, but it's, it's very difficult for me to test them both in tandem. I mean, at that point, you're basically dealing with three processes because you have the two that are trying to talk to each other and the test suite that's trying to referee, you know, and I find the game just gets out of control. Um, and then the other thing being uh, uh, complicated uh, user interface stuff, uh, though we have some pretty good tools for that now. Do you ever find it? Sorry, Josh. Do you ever find it? Go ahead, Do you ever find a case where, uh, you know, you know, exactly how to solve this problem by the implementation. You just need to change a couple lines, but to test this is really difficult. Uh, do you ever find a case where, you know, I just wish I could change the implementation and not have to go to testing? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I run into that once in a while, and it's like, it takes a lot of discipline to go, okay, let's start with a test. I know it's an easy fix, but start there. Yeah, ab absolutely. I I'd say that, that especially comes up in bugs. I always prefer to write the test first, so you know, to project protect against regressions. But mm -hmm. you know, it's like you say, as soon as I've seen the the email come in from the angry user, I know exactly what line of code it's in, you know, and I just want to go fix it. Right. That, so, so I ha I have um I have a myth, and that's that um it's hard you can't test code in rake tasks. Yeah, I don't buy that one. The yeah, so so I mean oh. the. It, I mean, there is no built-in test harness anywhere for, uh, you know, like if you're writing a Rails application and you want to add some some rake tasks, there, there's no folder to put your rake task tests in. Uh, but it's actually trivial to write all the functionality of what you do in the body of your rake task as a, a library class, mm -hmm. which, you, which mm -hmm. you can test totally fine uh, in your ordinary, you know, in test unit or in RSpec, and then your entire, the entirety of your rake task body is just a one-liner that calls that, uh, that class somewhere. 
Right. Yeah, I, and, I and a one-liner you can test by inspection. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, I think that's the right way to write any rig task is that it should just be the only thing it should do is call into some method. Either uh, a lot of times for me it's just a model method, a class method on a model usually or something like that. But I think that's the right way to write a rig task. Yeah, I agree. Yep. So I've got a, a, a dual myth. Okay. Uh, all right. So the, the one side of the myth is uh, testing is hard, and the other side of the myth, myth a little more refined, is um, doing testing. Um, writing code plus writing tests is always, by definition, harder than uh, just writing code because because of the the additive property. Um, so both of these are based on the assumption of a static skill set that uh, I just want to respond to people when they say testing is hard. Uh, the answer is not don't test. The answer is get better at it. And when people say testing is harder than not testing, testing plus code is you know greater than just code, um, there's this thing that started happening, and, and maybe it's just early onset Alzheimer's, I'm not sure, but there's this thing that's happening in it my is. code. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> do you have my pills? Uh, it's <laughs> I've been meaning to ask somebody. Uh, there's this weird thing that started happening with me in my code recently where I've started pair programming with my test suite. And I'm talking like the good kind of pair programming where, where like you don't just have one person driving and one person watching, but you're actually having an active conversation and there's this gestalt that emerges of two brains working together. And I've got this test suite that is, that's got my back, that's checking everything, and I stop watching my own back. I, I just focus on what's next, what's next, what's next. And this test suite is coming along behind me, locking everything down and, and holding it all in place. And then I get to the end of an hour with no idea where the time has gone. And I turn back and I think, holy crap, I wrote all this code. Now, granted, this is the same guy who at the top of the hour said that he you know, built a whole site, shipped it, and then woke up the next morning and found out that he missed a step in his critical path. So you know, take it with a grain of salt. But my point is that while I was doing that type of testing uh, or that type of development, the testing plus coding was a different type of coding. It was not the same kind of coding. It was not simple addition. It is not simply reduxed to 10 lines of code plus 10 lines of test equals twice as many lines of, of total code produced at the end of the day. There is... I, just get better at testing is the, is the myth I'm trying to bust here. Don't assume a static skill set. Don't assume that testing is always hard. And if testing is always tangling up around your ankles... Take a minute to be sensitive to that. That's a code smell. That means your tests are not well factored, and you need to go back and refactor them. I uh, I definitely agree with what you said. I I actually have been thinking about the when what people mean when they say testing is hard, and I've actually come to believe that what they're actually trying to say is testing requires a lot of discipline. Usually, when I talk to them and get to the meat of the problem. 
the kinds of things they say, well, you know, I whip out this controller and I run through it in the browser and it's working. And then I, I, oh, I need to go back and write the test for that, you know, and that that's hard for them, which, of course, eventually you learn that it's actually easier if you if you start at the test side and, and come forward because you can push those things forward together at the same time instead of going back and playing big catch up every few moments, you know, and. Uh, but it, I, I do agree a little bit that it does require a lot of discipline. And in a way, I think that's one of its strengths is that it does require so much discipline. That, you know, I mean, let's face it, when we sit down and write 600 lines of code unchecked, you know, we, we make a mess, you know, just yeah. because we're dumping from our brain. But when we sit down and force ourselves to be disciplined about it, uh, you know, that we tend to do a better job and, and think things through better. I do I like see. To, Go ahead. I, I like to think of testing as a way of scaling your complexity. Um, we, we do any, and of course, you know, anything that's web scale, right? Whatever they do to get those kick-ass benchmarks, that's what I'll do. But um, testing is complexity scaling, and that means you have to invest upfront. You have to learn something new. You have to try something a different way of cross-checking yourself, but. Yeah, you're right. It, it, at 60 lines, that test feels like nothing but overhead. At 6,000 lines of code, that testing is a godsend. Yeah, it, it is. really. I think for me the. I think for me the hardest test is to write. Is the first test because that's sort of setting the foundation of how am I going to really design this, and then once once I get a first test going, and then a second test, it starts rolling, and tests become much easier to write after that because. I, have sort of this ball that I'm just modifying slightly, um, but the first test is always the hardest, and and I think that's what a lot of people get hung up on is, is okay, how do I start this? Yeah, I got to bring so, up this funny thing that I do sometimes I, that I notice that it's definitely wrong. Sometimes I'll write a little method, and it has it, this, you know, it takes in some argument, does three steps on it, and hands it back out or something like that, and then I'll I'll go and I'll write the test. And on you know one side of the assert equal, I just call that method, and then on the other side of the assert equal, I just do the exact same three steps, <laughs> you know. So I'm like <laughs> testing itself with like a copy of itself, and yeah, I've found myself doing that a couple of times, and that's that, kind of embarrassing. That that drives me a little nuts as well, and that's one of the cases where I wonder, is it even worth writing the test? So that, right, that, it, if it was so simple, yeah. That that's yeah. one thing that I wanted to jump in on too is. Um, are there instances where you know we're talking about when not to test? Are there instances where it's not you? You don't test because it's just not worth it. Yes, yes. There, there are, the, mm-hmm. and and there's a couple a couple angles on that. One of my angles on that is when I'm doing TDD. There's there's two main things that I get out of it. One is you have a regression suite when you're done. You know, when you're done, you have you have test coverage and you don't have to worry about oh is the code working or not. But, but the other thing that you get out of TDD is that it drives the design of the software. And you end up with software that is, by its nature, better factored because you ha- you, to be able to be testable, you can't have all these gigantic methods and have a big mishmash of stuff. So, so if I'm doing something that I've done 20 times already and I know exactly how it's supposed to work, then the benefits that I get from TDD, I still get the benefits of the test coverage, but driving out the design isn't going to be as helpful for me from TDD. So, mm-hmm. so if I'm doing a typical kind of restful controller in Rails, uh, 
which I've done so many times now I can't even count, I don't need to have that help me flesh out the design of it. And I probably don't need to worry too much about the test coverage on it if I have you know, five or six controllers that are all do, you know, operating very similarly. So I will, it, I will sometimes slack off a little bit on there if I'm feeling a little schedule pressure and I want to, uh, if I have to make some trade-offs and figure out where to cut corners. That's a, that's a typical place where I will cut a little bit. So I have a question, Josh. There, there's a pattern that I see in my code. I'm curious to know if you see it as well, where I'll have uh, some really in-depth tests, just drill into this controller, drill in, drill in, drill in, drill in. And then over the top, there's an acceptance test. And then there's another controller that works kind of the same way, and all it will have is the acceptance test. And a little note that says, look, if you really want to get into the details, go look at this other one here. But it's the same stuff, so there's duplication. Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll have one drill in and a coverage, and then I'll have three coverages. And I'm, I'm content with that because I'm not really worried. It's, it's all happy path. I'm, I, I don't need to test happy path implementation if there's a covering acceptance test. Yes, that's a great example. Awesome. I wanted to comment on what you guys just said. I always say that tests are risk management, right? And if it's something, like you said, yes. that you've done 10,000 times, you're, you know it like the back of your hand, you're not going to screw it up, then the risk is very low. So you need very low risk management, right? You're not going to screw it up. Mm-hmm. But if it's something that, you know, is new and you're feeling your way in the dark, then, then you know, uh, I, I think it was Uncle Bob Martin uh, that said in one of his Rails keynotes um, that, you know, when you're when your uh, brain surgeon gets in there and the operation gets more complicated, you don't want him to freak out. You want him to take a step back, calm himself down, and bring every tool he has to bear on the problem, right? To, to become more professional, to take more baby steps, to be more careful because it's your brain on the line, you know? And I think that's exactly how testing works. You know, when we're cruising along, when we know what we're doing, when we're comfortable, it's okay to, you know, flow. And then when you're not, then you need to be a professional, take a yep. step back and start baby stepping. Yeah. Right. A professional I, falls back on his on his uh, habit, no, not his habit, on his training. If a professional falls back on his training, not on his instincts mm-hmm. when it's time yeah, to, when, when he wants to panic. So I, I have to ask then, we're, we're talking about uh, ROI and another instance that I want to explore a little bit is uh, code that maybe changes often or I don't know, you know, where it basically makes the test brittle or where, you know, not so much that you get a low ROI because you know the code will work, but you maybe you get a low, low ROI because it's going to take a lot to maintain it. Are you guys still yeah. there? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're thinking. Yeah. But I, I definitely see what you're saying about um, if there's code that changes often. I think my main concern there is if there's code that changes often, then why is that happening? Is that happening because that section's being rebuilt all the time? Or is that happening because that code is designed badly and as you put more stresses on it, like from the outside, then you're finding that it's very not capable at doing what you needed it to do. In that case, mm. my prescription would be up the test, not yeah. lower the test, right? Yeah. But, right, uh, because it's higher risk. Right. And but, I, would, I, would, I would actively flip what you said as well, that if there's a piece of code that's static and, uh, or, and not important, 
um, I think it's a very powerful statement to say, I refuse to test this. Um, I am relegating this to the bucket of stuff I am not going to test. And if this blows up in my face, the correct behavior is for the server to 500 and fall down and die. Mm-hmm. That's a very so, powerful statement. Uh-huh. So, so we're uh, rather than high um, high r- rate of change. I mean, maybe maybe there's just a problem that's way too complex and will require a lot of maintenance. Are, are there situations like that? I, I I like to back off on those. I like to get get a level up above them or two levels away and start writing acceptance tests around what it's supposed to do at a higher level. Um, if I'm churning too much in implementation and my tests are churning implementation, about the second or third time I say, okay, this is, this is dumb. I'm doing the same three steps in both the code and in the test. I've got duplication. How can I back off and say, what's really wanted here? And now the implement- implementation can churn a little bit. Um, like, a, like you can replace a query with a cached query and that kind of stuff. And your acceptance test doesn't change. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I've got a question for you guys. Um, I might change the subject a little bit here, but I know this is called the Ruby Rose podcast, but what about JavaScript? That happens to be an area that I suffer in testing a lot is the JavaScript code. Um, I was wondering if you guys sort of have the same problem. I've been working on that more recently, but I, I wanted to get you guys' feedback on it. Sorry to cut you off there, James. No problem. Oh, I love JavaScript. Yeah. Yeah, your audio your audio is chopping a little bit, Ryan. I think we can hear you. Um, yeah. I, okay. I love Jasmine and, and Vows for testing JavaScript and CoffeeScript. Jasmine and Vows. I've heard mm, of Jasmine. Vows. What's the other one? Vows V O W S. So Jasmine Vows, is RSpec okay. and Vows is Cucumber. Okay. And Cucumber is good for you. <laughs> Something I've been recently is I. Something I've been looking at recently is a Jasmine Headless WebKit. That's what the project is called. Uh, it works with Guard great and um, sort of a nice way to run Jasmine without having to open a browser. Zombie is that way with Vows as well. Zombie is a, a headless, uh, and it's the new George Romero zombie. It's it's supposed to be fast and headless. <laughs> don't don't headless zombies crumble into dust or something? It's complicated. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm writing. All I know is I'm writing all my code from the rooftop of a shopping mall now. Okay, great. <laughs> so, so um, let's see. I I had uh, I had another um, another myth type thing to address, and one was uh, and that's a uh, one shot code. One shot so, code. Yeah, like if you if you have something that all you need you. you like let's say you got a big a big uh, um, uh, CSV file that you need to import, and you only ever have to import it once. So oh, I don't need to test drive that. I don't need to have tests for that. I just need to write the code and make sh- and make sure it works. And Can I be your audience chill, Josh? Yeah, please do. <laughs> That's wrong. You should test that. Tell them why. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So. so um, the, so, so first off, the the myth of the one shot code is that you're only ever going to run it once, and because first off, you run it in development, and then you run it in staging, run it in production, and then you have to run it in production again because somebody finds another file that you have to import. So, I, I think that one shot code is very rarely ever one shot. I have a I have a rule of thumb I use for that. Um, if I can do it in IRB, then it's fine. 
So, like, if it's, you know, somebody writes in and they've forgotten their password and they just want me to reset it to something, you know, I can go into IRB or Script Console, I guess, in this case, and call up data attribute and set it to something stupid, you know, or whatever. Uh, then I'm fine with that. Um, if it's something I would be uncomfortable doing in IRB, then then it's wrong. That, so, like, the example you gave where you have to do that CSV file and, and the reason... I actually had a client that beat this out of me because they would um, write me and say, I need X statistics from our database. And they would explain what they wanted. And I would go in and I would generate it and I would spit it out and I would do it in IRB and, you know, it'd get a little long and messy, but that's okay. I'd spit it out, put it in a file, download it, send it off to them. Then I'd break my connection and I swear five minutes after I disconnected from the server, he would write me back and say, you know what, now that I've seen that, I would like to see <laughs> it, this, which is almost like that, but with this. Can, can you tweak it a little? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. One-shot one code, you're only going to run it once until you need to run it again. I have the one-shot story from hell, and Chuck, you were there for this. Do you remember the Migratrix? Uh-huh. So we had a we we had a the, the legacy site and a beta site, and the database format changed. And this uh, another myth, by the way. I, I, I'll at least earn my airtime here. Uh, you don't have to test migrations. Um, the uh, that that's a myth. If the migration is weird and crazy and can probably break, and we had a legacy a whole bunch of legacy code that had to be seriously transformed and restitched together into the beta site. So I knew going in that it was too complicated. Um, to to write without a test, so I wrote all these these tests. I'll, I'll make a long story short and basically say, by the time the smoke cleared, this thing was running every hour, pulling code because the beta site and the legacy site they changed their minds. There was no cutover. The two sites ran in parallel for over six months, and this migratrix thing had to run like every hour pulling over all new data out of the legacy database, migrating it, and putting it into the new database. And, it, yeah, I, I still wake up screaming. Yeah, it was it was beyond complex. I, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think you need to test things like create table or whatever. But, yeah, if you're, if you're dealing with anything that goes beyond just the standard, you know, four or five things you're going to do in a migration, you, mm -hmm. you definitely need to test them. And if you're, do, you're doing any kind of data manipulation, you need to test that too. Or normalizing and denormalizing, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, so one little tip that I'll, I'll give, a little pro tip, is that if you do a migration, even if it's really simple stuff, the best thing to do after you do rake db migrate is do rake db migrate redo. Because yes. that is typically the only time the down migration will ever get run um, unless you actually need to do it somewhere. And the and that's the only time you'll ever get to exercise it before you actually need it in production somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, so very, that'll, that'll catch typos and all that stuff. Just I very briefly uh, forced myself to you do rake db migrate, rake db migrate redo, and or rake db db redo. Uh, no, it is rake db migrate redo, and then rake db migrate version equals zero, and tear the whole thing all the way down, and then rake db migrate up. I've since since stopped doing that because it wasn't. It taught me some really good lessons about, you know, various things. But uh, this was back in the rake one days, and we really didn't have a good concept of seeding data. And uh, I don't know if I would still do that anymore. Um, but it's a fun exercise. You should try it and see how it changes your migrations. Well, you, it's it's interesting because most of the time you're going to migrate up, and so you're just like, you know, 
it, it works. I run DB migrate and it, you know, all my tests pass and the database is in a sane state. But the one time that you have to roll it back or if you have to roll it back several versions mm-hmm. and make sure that all of the data is lined up the way it was and that everything is behaving the way that you expect it to, you, you can really get into some ugly places because your down migrations don't do exactly what you thought they would do. Yeah. And if you only test one side of it, make sure that you can go from version zero all the way up to up and running because the next developer on your team, that's going to be part of his setup practice. Yep. Although just to say, a lot of people have gotten away from bringing new databases up like that. They tend to uh, use uh, Rake's DB, uh, the DB schema, just load DB schema, DB schema load, I guess, uh, to put the schema back in and go forward from there. Yeah, yeah that, the... the um the argument against that that I've heard is that it is like in CI you want to always run all your migrations because that's often the only time when they get exercised. Um, so if you if you ever need to run like that, but but I I, I like you I like your um, approach of just load the schema. Okay, well Dave has to leave in like ten minutes, so I'm going to yep. let him do his picks real quick because it sounds okay. like people still have stuff to talk about. Uh, I wish I could stay longer. This has been an awesome conversation. You know, so so we'll let him go. We'll kind of chat for a little bit longer, and then we'll have everyone else do their picks. Okay. So my pick for this week is a wonderful new gem called Pry. <laughs> I, I'm kidding because uh, in the back channel, like what all of us wanted to pick Pry this week, didn't we? Uh, somebody somebody else can pick that. Somebody called dibs on that. Um, I have a really weird pick uh, as usual, and that is uh, I may have picked this before. But uh, Moleskin notebooks, um, they make, uh, these are incredibly hipster, well, they're not hipster because you've probably heard of them, uh, but they're very pretentious. They're, they're very expensive, $20 for like a 200-page notebook. It's, it's very, very expensive. Um, but the paper is extremely heavyweight. You can write on them with magic markers. It doesn't bleed through to the other side. And they're small enough that you can stick them in like the back pocket of your jeans or in your cargo pants and carry them around. And I'm finding that out of all the journals that I've ever kept over the years, this is the easiest journal for me to just always have with me and always just pull it out and just write something down in it. It's very easy to capture. I, I find more of my thoughts are getting captured in this notebook than any other type before. So there you go. It's, I guess it's a product plug. I don't mean it to be. Um, you don't have to pick Moleskin, if you, especially if you're anti-hipster and you're, you know, or anti-trend. Um, but uh, in that case, my pick is a notebook. You need some kind of external RAM. Um, short pencil is better than long memory. Memory and anything that will get you writing stuff down is good for you. And uh, it doesn't have to be high ceremony. You can, you should pull out uh, your notebook and write scribbles in it. Do stupid doodles. Have arguments with people in it. Don't just save it for very precise engineering drawings and and your long drawn out muse and whatnot. No, just something that gets you. If you're willing to whip it out and write something down. It's perfect. Did, did they used to call those things day books? Um, I don't. Is that the word? Is that, I, I, I remember that this was actually a fairly common practice, and and some of the great thinkers of of many ages kept kept uh, these yes. sort of daily journals. Yes. And yeah. and it's it's really great to go back and read just like their daily thoughts about stuff. Yeah. The the the, the marketing blurb around Moleskin is that they were. Uh, they were based off of a type of journal that were very popular in Europe in the late 1800s, early 1900s that were like hand-stitched. And yeah, all the artists carried them and mused in them and angsted in them. Yeah. I, I like the implication that Dave is a great thinker because in uh, another no, no, episode, I, he said that uh, 
all of his best coworkers were the ones that had engineering degrees. Yep. And, and that made me feel really good. So if yeah. he's a great thinker and his best coworkers had engineering degrees, then yeah. I'm, I'm up there. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> so the, the, the most important thing, the, the, the most astonishing thing for me is I scribbled a page completely black using a Sharpie magic marker, and it did not bleed through to the next page. It, it, it mottled the backside of the paper, um, but it did not bleed through to the next page. It's, it's a, the paper is just you, just, you just want to write on this paper. It's so creamy and smooth. It's very nice. And get a nice pen, too. <laughs> that's my pick creamy and smooth that made me think of something else mm-hmm, mm-hmm. hope it was food i hope so too <laughs> yeah you've got a new baby in the house so hope it was yeah. food. so all right you know what i probably ought to bow out you guys i'm gonna lose this room um ryan it's been fantastic being on the podcast with you i, I and josh well, thank and you, james dave. um I, I you guys are great good to see you dave thanks for joining us yeah, take care see you yep. later bye all right. Well, we got about five more minutes to talk, and then we're going to go into the picks. So, uh, so can I bring up one controversial question? Sure. How about is a hundred percent coverage even a good idea? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll jump in and tackle part of this. I, I think again, it comes back to the discussion of return on investment and trade-offs. I mean, if you if you're spending hours and hours testing code that you don't need to test to get that last 2%, then no, it's not a good idea because you're wasting time that you could spend putting in features or this or that. I mean, if you can get there and your code is well enough factored that you know writing that hundredth percent of the test is, is not a big deal, then yeah, it, it, it could definitely be a good idea because then you know that, well, you don't necessarily know that 100% works, but at least 100% gets exercised. But that's the other thing, too, is that we're talking about 100% exercise, not necessarily 100% verification of, you know, features or functionality. Right. I never liked the word coverage when it just means that the code happened to be executed because, you know, it may not be tested at all. Um, But I do like uh, the way I like to think of it is, uh, can I deploy with confidence? Do I have enough coverage in my test suite that I can you know, run the test, and as long as they pass, I can just deploy the application with confidence, then I think that's uh, good enough coverage for me. And that usually means I have at least close to 100% coverage in most of the lower-level code, you know, models and controllers, of course, for sure, um, just to make sure that I've, they all function properly. I like to make the, the lower-level code more fully tested because it's used throughout various parts in the application. I, if I'm making a gem and extracting it out to many different applications and I want to make that very well tested, you know, make the model layer very well tested because it's used in many different con- controllers, uh, the, the view layer is usually only executed in one specific place. So sometimes I can get by with just testing that manually. But uh, the lower level it is, the, the more I like to test it. So, so you, you like to have 100% code confidence, not necessarily code coverage. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So, so I want to I want to uh, build on that, Ryan, and because I think that's a great point. That there's uh, there's some great examples in. Um, uh, I hate to pick on Rails. Well, actually, I don't hate to pick on Rails. Uh, <laughs> but the, but but if you look at say the migrations code in in Active Record, uh, there's um, there's some pretty crufty code in there. Uh, although uh, Aaron has been doing a great job of cleaning that stuff up, but the, but it. It got that way because there wasn't good test coverage of it, and the, you know somebody made one of those calls early on saying, "Oh, this is too hard to test this stuff. I'm not going to test it." And they so they they started accreting all of this 
crufty code that, because it was built on a foundation that wasn't tested, kept getting harder and harder to test. And as time went on, it, it turned into something that became incredibly difficult to test. It was like everything was on the class side of things. It, you know, class reloading uh, was a huge problem. And so, so if, you, if you start off with the foundation that's not tested and you're trying to build on it, you're just asking for trouble. Uh, I feel like I'm channeling David now. <laughs> but the, <laughs> but the, <laughs> but the, uh, He's still here. <laughs> so, but uh, so, it, so if you have a piece of code that for one reason or another you skimped on the testing of it and now you're going to come back to it and work on it and expand it, I think you really need to reevaluate uh, your, your, the amount of testing that you've done on it. And, and maybe you want to stop, write some tests before you go and, and start expanding on the code. So is, so is untestability then a code smell? Or is it an indication of a problem? Not always, usually? I, I think that the code that is difficult to test ends up being code that is difficult to refactor, code that is difficult to expand on, uh, to, to extract and modularize. So, yeah, it, so, so it does end up, it, it is sort of a meta code smell. Yeah, I think it is. I, I think if you have something that's difficult to test, you have to ask yourself why. I mean, testing is just using code, right? So if you're saying something right. is difficult to test, you're saying it's difficult to use, right? And that's probably not a good thing, right? It probably means that there's some extracting that can be done there, that it can be made more modular and stuff like that. I do, James, I, James you should yeah. really give classes in boiling everything down to a simple <laughs> explanation. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I agree. I, I like, Go ahead, Brian. On the topic of coverage, I really do like tools like Simple Cup, though, because it makes me more aware, I guess, of what exactly my test is hitting. And sometimes I do find, wow, this code is not executed at all. And I could have, you know, I could just mistype this method completely, make an obviously large bug here, and my test would still pass. And so for that reason I do like to use simple cub. I don't rely on it completely, but uh, I think testing your code coverage in that way is a good good thing to check just at least to be aware of it. Yep. I think that's a good point. The only problem I have with tools like that, there's kind of been some discussion lately about how uh, you know we, we talk a big test game in Rails and the truth is that not as many of us are testing as we think. And uh, it, it may be that just the testers are kind of a vocal minority. But the point is, I, I think we make it kind of intimidating to non-testers. And I think mm -hmm. some aspect of that is is when we handle them tools like SimpleCov and say, see, you got to get this all the way there, you know. And, and uh, I, I think that's part of where we go wrong. I, I agree with Ryan. It's a totally useful tool and, and we use it and, and get feedback from it. And I, I think... Uh, I like to think of 100% coverage as the lighthouse on the horizon. I like to be able to see it. I like to know the lights there and which way I'm headed, but I, I don't ever really expect to get there. You know, like I, I, as long as I can still see the light, I'm close enough, you know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. a, a developer's reach should exceed his grasp, else what's a test suite for? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nicely put, Josh. I'm going to mistype that so it's not going in the show notes. <laughs> All right. Well, I, th I think we're just about out of time. Now, the funny thing is that I want to point out to the, the audience is that uh, 
we we said, well, what not to test is probably not a big enough topic to take up an entire episode. And so we were going to talk about what not to test and then factories and then mocking because, you know, that would fill up the hour. So <laughs> we'll have to talk about factories and mocking another time. But, uh, you know, I just want to thank you guys for coming on and uh, we'll get into the picks. Um, for people who are new to the podcast, a pick is just something that we've used that we like or, you know, something that we want to recommend that makes life better. Um, a lot of times they're code related, but not always. They can be toys or games or whatever. So um, we're going to go ahead and do that and uh, then we'll wrap this up. Um, I'll go ahead and let uh, um, Josh go first. Okay, thank you. Um, not fair. So, uh, so, so, uh, uh, David on his way out just sort of um, <laughs> got in a little dig for my pick. Uh, my pick is a, a gem called Pry, and uh, everybody loves this gem. So you've probably already, so the listeners have probably already heard about it by now. But uh, but I I have a couple things to say about it because it's so cool. This is um, a re- at one level it's a replacement for IRB. So it's a REPL, it's a you know, read, evaluate, read, evaluate, print loop program. It looks like IRB to some extent. You, you can type Ruby expressions in it and it will evaluate them and print the results. But it's also kind of like its own uh, shell or console where it has a command set that it comes with and it's extensible. You can add plugins and add new types of commands to it. Um, it that does things like you can CD into a class or an object, and then future commands that you that you type will e- execute within the context of that class or object. And then you can type ls to find the methods and you know things like that. So that that's pretty cool. Th- this is a really, um, I think, a, it's going to end up being an important addition to the Ruby ecosystem. The uh, and it's a shame David's not here to go all excited about Smalltalk again, but I'm going to say Smalltalk had this really great feature called the workspace where you would just type in Smalltalk code, select it, and type, you know, execute or print, print it, oh, I'm sorry, print it or do it. Do it would execute it, print, print it would execute it, and then print the results. And you could just, you know, do anything in there, and, uh, and a, a lot of code was developed that way. You, it was... You know, like James said, you just if you can type it in IRB, it's pretty cool. Uh, you, you don't need to test it, whatever. But that ended up being our test suite side of things, and and the Smalltalk debugger actually included a workspace that was set in the context of the um, of the stack frame where you were stopped. So I I think that the that the foundation that Pry is right now is really awesome. You should go to pry.github.com to take a look at it. There's a really good screencast. It's about 15 minutes or so, it's well worth watching. So what's here now today is awesome. I'm really looking forward to seeing people build some stuff on top of it or to integrate with it, both through the uh, extensible plugin command system, but also building new uh, frameworks or, or uh, a new context around it. I can imagine a tool in TextMate that is, a, is a, you know, rather than being a command line uh, interface to the pry functionality, having it be something that just sits in a in a text window, and you can select things and do the equivalent of of do it or print it from like the Smalltalk workspace. So, so that's my that's my first pick. All right. Um, th- my second pick is um, completely off the wall and really kind of um, uh, sappy or smarmy. But my my pick is um, showing appreciation for your friends. The, I, I, got, I was having a really crappy day yesterday, 
I just, you know, I'd had some really bad interactions with people that left me very frustrated and in a, in a pissed off aggressive mood. And I just kind of looked on my, on my screen and I saw some friends who were logged on in, in IM. And I just pick, you know, picked one and just kind of randomly said, hey, I just want to let you know how much I appreciate that you're my friend. And he, he was like, oh, wow, that's really awesome. You know, you're a great friend too. And it completely changed the character of the rest of my day. And I ended up having one of the best days I've had in a really long time just because I got out of my, you know, God, I hate the world frame of mind and, you know, said something nice to somebody, made his day, that made my day, the rest of my day just kept getting better. So that one of the things I learned, awesome. one of the things I've learned is that if you're having a bad day, the best way to improve your day is to make somebody else's day better. Nice. All right. So, That's awesome. All right. I, I want to... Um, pick on pry for a minute there didn't didn't you do a rails cast on that recently ryan i did it this week yeah uh, the last one actually recent most recent one all right oh, cool <laughs> yeah it's awesome i love it yeah so uh yeah go to pry.github.com but also go check out the rails cast on it all right james go ahead so chuck kind of stole my thunder but i was gonna say that um there are two ways people find out about things in the Ruby community, generally speaking. One is through uh, Peter's Ruby Weekly, which I'm sure we've discussed. We've had Peter on a bunch in the past, and I know we've plugged it before. And it's a great newsletter. Uh, the other way people find out about things in the Ruby community is watching Ryan's weekly Railscast episodes. And both of those this week focused on Pry. Uh, so that's why the Ruby community is uh, currently obsessed with Pry. Uh, and I think it's great. Uh, I just steal I, my I just steal my ideas from Ruby Weekly, so from Peter. he gets all the props. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Actually, I think yours came out first, so maybe he has to claim it the other way around. You know, uh, um, but I wanted to say that uh, you know Josh is telling us to show appreciation for our friends, so I, I'm actually going to show some appreciation for Ryan Bates. He has uh, 280 Railscast episodes. And I wrote a small script today. It wasn't tested, I'm going to confess. Uh, but <gasps> no. I know. I know. But it uh, combed through his site uh, to calculate how much time there is in uh, Railscast episodes available. And uh, it turns out it's over 41 hours now. Uh, it's, it's well over. And so uh, you're talking about two days you could just sit there and watch Ryan Bates teach you things about Rails. Uh, that's awesome. It's a massive uh, knowledge collection in our community and like a go-to source. And it's really good at all. Um, he, uh, he shows different uh, libraries and things that are handy. He shows just plain techniques. Um, and while all of it's a little Rails-focused, I mean, you, you get to see him program and uh, you get to see plenty of things. I, I actually recommended it to uh, uh, somebody I've been working with recently that's uh, you know still coming up and, and uh, trying to get good at Ruby. I said, just go watch some Railscast. I mean, you can watch Ryan do the right thing for like 40-plus hours. You know, it's, uh, it's really great. So uh, I have to give massive props to Railscast. And if you haven't watched them, you need to go back and do it. Every time there's a new release of Rails, he goes back and shows all the massive new features in a series of episodes. And so it's like, you know, if you watch Railscast, you're always up on what's going on and uh, what tools people are using. And he'll often show multiple different tools for doing the same thing, like the 
I'm thinking of background processing. You showed several ways to do that with uh, using all kinds of different tools. So Railscast as a resource, I, I can't recommend it enough. That's my pick. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think we all appreciate it, Ryan, to be honest. Um, all right, so I'm going to get into my picks. Um, there are a couple of things that I've been uh, doing stuff with lately. Um, most of it, I've just been at the hospital the last couple of days uh, because we had that baby. But uh, um, there are a few apps that I've been using that I've really been um, benefiting from and enjoying. One of them is harvestapp.com. And uh, it, it's what I use now for all of my time tracking and invoicing. And it's so easy to use um, that I've just, you know, it, it literally has saved me a couple of hours every week. Um, just keeping track of things and, and putting everything together and copying the time numbers over to the to QuickBooks so I can do the invoicing through there. And, you know, it's it's just been really nice. So so that's the first one is just Harvest, harvestapp.com. Um Another one while I was at the hospital, actually there were two things that, that were kind of lifesavers. Um, you know, my wife wanted me to be there because she gets bored at the hospital. And since I'm self-employed, I can just do that. I can just be at the hospital. Um, but while she was asleep, because, um, you know, having a baby is hard work, um, I would spend a lot of time just watching movies on my iPad with the Netflix app. And so that's another pick is just the, the Netflix app on the iPad. And the last one... Um, one that helped me kind of relax when I was tired and needed to sleep um, is actually audible.com. And uh, I just uh, downloaded the Hunger Games and listened to the first six or seven chapters. I, I'd read them before, but it was just nice because I could just lay there. I didn't have to look at the book. I could just kind of close my eyes and, um, you know, kind of drift drift in and out as, as the book was read to me. So so I, I have three picks, and that's what they are. Um, and we'll let Ryan go ahead and uh, do his picks. All right, my pick is uh, the board game Go, not to be confused with the programming language Go. Uh, this is uh, an ancient board game. It's thousands of years old, uh, but it's pretty easy to learn, um, yet it's hard to master. And it's a little bit tricky to get into because the first few hours you spend trying to learn and play this game, probably not very enjoyable. But the more you play it, uh, the more you realize how much true depth there is into it. And uh, one reason I recommend it and I like it so much is because I see a lot of parallels between this and writing code and programming uh, because for one thing um, there's certain there's a certain beauty in the moves that you play in Go and once you learn the game and understand it you can sort of recognize a good move by its beauty and that's something that's sort of hard to scientifically uh, put a label on to okay this is a beautiful move but but you recognize it and I see that in coding a lot too you know this is a good good code here because it's beautiful and understandable and easy to read and another reason I like it is because it exercises my brain in a way that uh, uh, programming uh, sort of benefits from as well and that is just looking at all the possible moves that I can do in every single move and uh, finding the best solution every time and sort of doing that brain exercise over and over again I find helps me in coding a lot because it's just basic problem solving so that's my, my suggestion the game of Go uh, if you want to find out more about it I have a site go versus go.com that actually James helped me out on on the uh, Rails Rebel uh, if you go to go versus go.com slash resources I have a whole list of resources there that you can learn to get started on it and if you want to play with me I'm on the dragongoservernet 
my name is Ryan Bates, or actually R. Bates, my username is. And uh, that's my pick. And for my more technical pick, um, I'd like to suggest the gem Foreman. This is a uh, little gem that I, I recently asked on Twitter. Okay, I have a lot of background processes that I need to start up for my Rails app for to get it running in development. And the gem Foreman makes it really easy to do so. You just list your processes and then run one command and it starts them all up for you. It makes it really easy if you have a lot of background processes like some workers or maybe a thinking Sphinx server or Sunspot server and so on. Really nice. All right. Well, well thanks so much uh, for those. I've heard a little bit about Foreman. Sounds, sounds like fun. And, you know, I, I remember I was competing in that Rails Rumble and you and James, you were in like the, one of the top 10 apps for the Rails Rumble or something like that. So uh, Something. I don't remember exactly how you ranked, but uh, yeah, I was impressed. All right. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and start the right music here. And, uh, you know, th- thank everybody for coming on to the show. Um, David had to leave early, but we'll thank him anyway. And uh, also on our panel, we had in no particular order, James Edward Gray. Thanks, everybody. Um, Josh, we love you, too. And Ryan, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, Josh Susser. Yeah, hey, guys, thanks. You're the best. Um, Ryan Bates. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a blast. Yeah, and I'm Charles Maxwood. And uh, just want to remind you, you can get the show notes by going to rubyrogues.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast by, in iTunes by... Uh, uh, just looking us up, Ruby Rogues will pull it right up. Um, we've been getting a lot of, I've been, or at least I've been getting a lot of feedback from people uh, saying that they like the show, giving me suggestions. Um, I want to let everybody know that I am reading those, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm trying to uh, do what I can to make the show, you know, into what you guys want. So, uh, you know, keep keep them coming. Um, the feedback, or even just, you know, hey, I like it, uh, is really nice. And uh, one other thing is, is that you know, if you have some idea go and uh, suggest a topic or you can be um, a little more public about it and suggest something on Twitter though people can't vote on it there and that's kind of how this came about is uh, Ryan suggested the topic and he kind of got his wish and then got invited to join us so um, you know if you have some ideas you know we're, we're definitely open to those and uh, we are considering things both on the forum and things that you send to us so um I think that's about it. Go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes, and uh, we will catch you next week. Thanks. <laughs>